and welcome to the ICEJ weekly webinar. I'm David Parsons, one of the vice presidents and senior spokesman for the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, coming to you from our headquarters here in Jerusalem, the capital of the state of Israel. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, on our weekly webinar, we take on a variety of topics, either Bible teaching, some of our projects, uh, and we have current affairs this week uh, that uh, lots happening in the uh, in Israel and, and the region. Of course, there's a lot of interest in what's happening with the new Israeli government, and is it going to stand? Is it going to face up to the backlash of its proposed judicial reforms. But uh, this week we're taking on another very important uh, um, topic, the security challenges of the new Israeli government. And our guest is Brigadier General uh, in the IDF Reserve, Amir Avivi. It's great to have you, General Avivi. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. We thank you for joining us. Uh, we've had him before as a webinar guest, and it's great to have him back. He is the chairman and founder of the Israel Defense and Security Forum. In Hebrew, it's Sahab Bithon Nistim. Uh, it's a movement around two to three years old, about three years old, that he started after coming out of many years of army service to try and help shape the debate here in Israel over the security needs of the country. Um, and uh, he's really uh, uh, risen as a real voice in uh, the, this debate here in the country and also um, uh, abroad, uh, becoming more known as a, as a very uh, leading voice and analyst in Israel's security needs. He has a, a long career over 30 years in the IDF, uh, I think when you look at some of his positions, he's been uh, commander of the Gaza division, so he's commanded an actual fighting unit. He's been in commander of the School of Combat Engineering, so he's trained soldiers. He's been the, the director of the office of the chief of staff, so he's been at the highest administrative levels. And I think one of the interesting positions you had, General Vivi, was as deputy comptroller of the security forces which means you were like an auditor looking at all the different branches of the military, the Armored Corps, the infantry, the um, Air Force, the Navy. How are they spending their money? Are they being efficient? And it really gave you the nuts and bolts, the ins and outs of the IDF. And we just really appreciate uh, having you and your insights here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. All right, please give us a, a, a briefing here on what you think are the uh, security challenges of the new Netanyahu government uh, that was sworn in just a couple of weeks ago. Well, um, I'd like to talk about uh, four big challenges. And I think the way I will frame it might be a bit different from uh, many other people. Uh, we, we in the... Uh, in IDSF, we prepared the national security assessment, very thorough assessment that was presented to Prime Minister Netanyahu, to Smotrich, to the Minister of Defense, to the President two, two weeks ago, to the head of Mossad. 
So there's a lot of interest about um, our research and the way we look at things. And this is an opportunity to share a bit of this uh, national security assessment. So I, I, I think that Israel has four very, very big challenges. Uh, some of them might be existential and it's important to talk about. The first challenge, it's what's going on, I would say beyond our borders in the Middle East, and this is the Iranian threat. Iran is not only Iran, it's not only the fact that Iran is aspiring to nuclear capabilities, it's Iran and all the militias that have been building for years uh, to deploy against Israel. Uh, we have Hezbollah uh, in the north, in Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah has accumulated uh, more than 100,000 uh, rockets and uh, mortars and uh, precise missiles. In the last 10 years, they have grown their capability from uh, a few dozen uh, UAVs to 2,000. Now, we've, we, we see what the Russians are able to do with Iranian UAVs in Ukraine. They're basically destroying all Ukrainian uh, uh, infrastructure. Most of Ukraine today is without electricity. And this is with Iranian capabilities and, and the, the Hezbollah has huge amounts of these uh, UAVs they can launch and also commando forces along the border. The same they're trying to build uh, in Syria with less uh, success because we keep attacking in Syria and trying to diminish the capabilities. But they are building also these capabilities in Gaza with Hamas and Islamic Jihad and in Yemen and in Iraq. So it's all over the place, all over the place. Uh, you probably don't know it, but a year and a half ago in the operation in Gaza, Israel was shot from Yemen and from Iraq. It wasn't a very successful shooting, but there is a buildup of force. So Israel is looking at what's going on on its borders and beyond. It's all Iran, all of it. And the Iranians are trying to build a nuclear umbrella around us and at the same time equip all these militias. And this is not a new threat. We have been talking about these threats for a very long time, but what is new is the fact that we reach or are reaching a critical point where Israel cannot wait anymore. The, the Iranians are very, very close to nuclear capabilities and enriching uranium to a very high uh, degree. And it's very clear today to Israel, to the defense establishment, to the new chief of staff, the Minister of Defense, that the main mission is taking care of the Iranian uh, capabilities. Now there is two, ways to do that. One is Israel by itself. And Israel is saying, we are going to build our capability in a way that we can defend ourselves by ourselves. But this is not the first option. The first option is to try to convince uh, the US administration, Europe, that US must lead uh, an attack on the Iranian infrastructure. Iran is not only a threat to Israel, not only a threat to the Middle East, it's a global threat. And in Iran, it's very clear today, it was clear to us before, but now it's clear that they have allied themselves completely with the Russians. 
with the Chinese. They are equipping the Russians. The Russians are going to equip them now. And this is a coalition against the Western world. So time has come for the West to realize what a threat this is and react. One of the things that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has talked about a lot in the last few weeks is him wanting to push peace with Saudi Arabia. Now, peace with Saudi Arabia is not another peace. It's a game changer because Saudi Arabia is the leader of the Sunni world, not only in the Middle East, also Pakistan, Indonesia. So signing an agreement with Saudi Arabia is not only going to normalize our relations with all the Sunni world in the Middle East, but it's probably going to normalize Israel's relations also with Indonesia, with uh, Pakistan. But the idea is much bigger than that. It's not only about signing a big peace agreement. It's about saying to the American administration, look, we are willing, both of us, Israel and Saudi Arabia, to bring this huge peace agreement to the White House. A huge success for the President Biden, but we, if we do that, we expect the US to ally itself completely with Israel and the Sunni world and lead the attack on Iran. So it's very tempting. I think it's a huge offer. Um, and this is, I think, what, what this government, Israeli government, is going to push forward, bringing a huge peace and gaining a coalition that will deal with this uh, very, very big threat of Iran and its militias. This is the most important and biggest thing that this government is going to deal with. The second thing is um, what's going on within inside the Israeli borders. And basically, I would say that inside the Israeli borders, the Israeli-Arab conflict is continuing as it was 100 years ago. The same conflict, different names, Palestinians, Judean Samaria, uh, Israeli Arabs, but really overall the conflict is the same conflict and, and it's, it's, it's handling itself in the same way all over the place. Meaning what the Arabs are doing is one, trying very hard to illegally grab as much land as possible. It's happening in Judea and Samaria in what we call area C, the area under the responsibility of Israel. It's happening in the desert of the Negev. It's happening in the Galilee. So basically all over Israel, there is grabbing of land illegally. And they basically took the ways the Zionism worked while there was a British mandate here. And they are doing the same to us in an in alarming pace, very, very fast. The second thing is the attempt to completely undermine this, the personal security of Israelis. Israelis everywhere feel less secure than in the past. And it's all over the place. It's not only about settlers in Judean Samaria, it's happening in the Negev, it's happening in the Galil, in mixed cities, in Jerusalem. And basically pretty much the Israeli society went to elections with this in mind, personal security. So we see a beginning of a, ch a change 
in attitude, in understanding that this is a huge deal. This is something big we need to take care of. The issue of governance, of personal security, of sovereignty. Um, and we see this government at least talking about it and pushing forward uh, laws and the way the police is going to be organized in a way that will bring more security uh, to the Israeli citizens. And we in, in IDSF are very, very involved in, in assisting the police and the army in pushing forward, building a national guard that is very much needed in order to cope with the huge challenges of an Arab appraisal inside Israel. Uh, in this sense, I must say that also here Iran is involved. Iran is pushing a lot of money to Palestinian organizations in Judea and Samaria, trying to destabilize, trying to push forward the terror attacks, trying to indoctrinize Israeli Arabs. So also here Iran uh, is involved. And while all this is happening, we see another phenomena we didn't see before, and this is the Palestinian Authority starting to collapse. The Palestinian Authority is a very evil entity that funds terror in billions, that delegitimizes Israel all over the world, that incites in the education system, but also it's a terrible entity for its own people. The Palestinians hate them because they, they take their money, they arrest them, there is no civil rights. And um, we usually talk about the bad guys, we talk about Hamas and Islamic Jihad, ISIS, but, but the Palestinian Authority is a terrible organization. And it's dissolving, it's, it's falling apart because it is like that. And there is a very, very good chance that in the year or two, uh, looking to the future, the day after Abbas, after the president of the Palestinian Authority, might bring uh, some kind of anarchy in the, in the Palestinian society, a civil war. All the people who might um, be the next leaders in the Palestinian Authority are arming themselves to the teeth building their own militias. And it's clear that the day after Abu Mazen, they are going to fight each other. And where it will go, nobody knows. And this might destabilize completely the, the situation in Judea and Samaria. And this is a very big challenge um, for Israel. Um, the IDF today is ongoing, operating all the time in, in this area. Uh, we have good security control, but We'll have to see what happens. The third, the fourth uh, issue is talking about what is going on in the Jewish communities around the world. And what we see is, uh, first of all, um, many Jews disconnecting from Israel, uh, being affected by the huge campaign of delegitimation that again is led by the Palestinian Authority. If you go into the BDS um, website and you scroll all the way down, it says clearly who is running it, who is running the show. And um, basically the BDS and all its the different branches have destabilized 
the Jewish world. It's affecting Jews. Uh, people are distancing themselves from, from Judaism, from connection to Israel. Some even become against Israel, which is crazy. And um, we're losing millions, millions of Jews. And, and one of the things that we're trying to do is explain to, to the Israeli government that when they uh, allocate budget and, and resources and attention, they need to look at the overall Iranian threat, the overall inside threat, and the overall Jewish world, the same, give it the same attention. And today it's not like that. Today, when you talk to the government, they say Iran is first, Lebanon is second, Gaza is third, Palestinian Authority fourth, until you get into uh, internal security and Jewish world, there is no budget, no attention. So the way we are framing um, the challenges is in a way that supposed to create a reality where Israel gives a, a different level of attention to what's going on into internal security and the Jewish world. Um, in the Jewish world, we see that overall, um, the overall attempt to fight anti-Semitism has failed. It's not working. And we need to think again how we approach uh, this issue. It's a whole different uh, uh, discussion, but we in IDSF have built a comprehensive plan out of the box, completely new uh, approach of how to build the resilience of the Jewish communities. Of course, how to encourage Jews to make Aliyah at the end of the day. Uh, it is the purpose of the Jewish people to come to the land of Israel and bring redemption to the world. Without all the Jews coming to Israel, we cannot um, do what we need to do as a nation. So we are very, very encouraging um, Aliyah, uh, Jews coming uh, to Israel. And I, I know David that you deal with that a lot and we really appreciate it and, and think that this is a immensely important. So basically, this is uh, uh, the big picture of uh, the challenges. They are very complex, there are many, many challenges. And it's clear that uh, Israel will have to give a lot of attention to security and national security uh, in this government. And, and I can say that the good news is that the economy is flourishing. We have managed in very short time to take down uh, our national debt to 60%. To, we compared, for example, to the US, the US is double, it's 120%. Mm. We are half of that. Uh, so the economy is doing great. We have money and we have resources and we need to allocate them to the right places. Mm. Okay, thank you for that uh, general overview. All very good. I tell you that it's hard to, uh, you know, think, uh, did you leave anything out? I, I really appreciate it and very comprehensive and taking it into uh, a few areas I, I didn't expect, but I, I love the way you're talking about encouraging Aliyah. I know the last time we met, you you said some Jewish uh, American Jew once told you uh, 
how can we help? How can we help uh, secure Israel? And you said, pack your bags. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Israel yeah. needs only one thing, more Jews. Yeah. And uh, I tell you, it is concerning because for years as I've traveled around Europe speaking, uh, uh, going visiting our branch offices there, visiting Jewish communities, the, the security is, is heavy around every synagogue, around all the meetings involving Israel, Jews, I, one in Oslo, peaceful Oslo, there were two guys with Uzis on every corner of the building we were in and all around heavily SWAT teams. I, I just haven't ever seen a heavy presence like that um, just at a, a meeting to talk about Israel in the Middle East. And uh, and uh, yeah, it, it is a, a, a real concern growing in the U.S. The attacks on Jews are, are, are growing there as well. I want to go back to uh, uh, the new government. Uh, I expect, you know, the problem that Ari Derry encountered yesterday with the ruling of the Supreme Court, they're going to find a way around it. The government won't collapse. Shots won't pull out. They'll find a way to keep him in uh, a position of calling some shots uh, despite his legal troubles. Uh, so, you know, I think we can continue based on that major assumption, but I think it's pretty reasonable. And, uh, but let's talk for a minute uh, about the main um, guys calling the shots on security issues. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is Mr. Security, uh, the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and there's a new Chief of Staff, Hertzi uh, Halevi. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, your impressions on all three and how they're going to work together? Well, first of all, when we talk about Netanyahu, uh, when you when we look at the way he handles himself talking about security, he's very, very careful in mobilizing soldiers to combat. Uh, he, he, he's, he doesn't like wars. I mean, the, the time Netanyahu was prime minister uh, was the quietest uh, time we knew. Uh, each time he had a choice not to go on operation, you know, not to fight, he chose that. Um, so he's not a guy that is uh, really, you know, looking for, for uh, fighting. Uh, he's very, very responsible in the way uh, he mobilizes the army. On the other hand, when you look at Yoav Gallant, I, I served in four different positions with Yoav, three under his command, and one, he was the secretary of the prime minister, and, and, and I was the aide de camp of the chief of general staff, and we worked together. Yoav is a gladiator. He's a real warrior, and he's a, a guy that is not afraid of anything. I've seen him in combat, seen him in operation. He's, by the way, he's, he's, he's a Navy commando and has operated in uh, all around the Middle East in uh, secret operations, raided in different places. He's a real hero uh, and the guy um, that is not afraid from uh, combat. And in a way, it's a good uh, combination because 
you, you want the old the responsible guy, but you also want the Rottweiler that is ready to charge any moment. And, uh, and this is, I think that our enemies realize that they know who you have guarantees. They know that this guy has no problem kicking their ass any moment. Uh, I don't think that uh, guns projected the same, the same kind of uh, character. Um, so this in a way can be a deterrent for many of our, of our enemies knowing who, who is the guy and, and the way he thinks. Um, Herzi Alevi, I think he, he, as chief of staff, is a very good uh, choice because um, Herzi has a, a very balanced combination between a guy that grew in infantry, the paratroopers, uh, have been in regular army, battalions, brigade, and so on. But also he was in special operations in uh, Sayeret Matkal, in our intelligence uh, top unit, and he served in different positions in the uh, intelligence. So he has a very deep knowledge and understanding of the Iranian issue, in many aspects, um, and uh, his ability to combine his knowledge um, of intelligence with uh, his background as a warrior and also in special operations uh, definitely brings the right uh, background at this time when you have to build the army for an operation in Iran or in Lebanon is definitely the right guy uh, to do it. I think he's going to invest more in the reserve. The reserve have, have not been uh, trained enough. He didn't give, get enough attention in the last few years. He's going to build more the reserve and continue also to build the ground forces and the air force. Um, so he's also a very brave and serious uh, guy. Um, and in the internal security, we have uh, Bengvir, new minister. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. He he ran on uh, that issue of personal security, which you mentioned for Israelis internally driving down the streets. Are you going to get rammed by a, a car in a terrorist ramming, and so many other ways? The shootings, the rock throwings have been on the increase. And he was one of the few guys really uh, promoting the, the notion of providing uh, personal security for Israelis. Okay. And it's interesting, David, because, you know, usually politicians are supposed to, to check what the society is interested in and run accordingly. But when, when we did a survey and asked the Israeli society, what are you worried about? The top, top was personal uh, security and the cost of living. Mm. And only the right-wing parties in this uh, last election were really talking about that, about cost of living and about uh, personal security. And, and the left stayed with uh, just not Bibi or other issues like religion, democracy, issues that when we checked, we saw that Israeli society is not that interested in this issue. For them, it's not that such a big deal. 
So it comes as no surprise that uh, Bankville got so much traction in this election. Okay, I know a lot of this uh, sense of a, an urgency to have better personal protection uh, it came about because you had this spike in terror attacks. We're going to look internally now within Israel and the and the territories and these lion den groups. This is Iran trying to uh, stir and fund terrorism against Israelis, but they didn't. Were they doing it through traditional Hamas or Fatah channels, or were these new uh, groups sort of compartmentalized? It was hard to find them. Uh, can you and and has Israel been able to contain that threat? Well, it, it's a combination. Uh, first of all, you have you have uh, the northern part of Judean Samaria and the area of Jenin. You have the very strong presence of the Islamic Jihad. The Islamic Jihad is an Iranian militia, proper Iranian militia funded by Iran, guided by Iran and everything. But this militia is also cooperating with fractions of the Fatah, of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, that have detached themselves from the PLO. So, the fact that the, the PLO and the Palestinian Authority is falling apart, this is affecting because there are new like kind of battalions and groups that are being built. And these groups are looking for funding and the, the funding you have is mostly Iranian. So that attach themselves to other groups like the Islamic Jihad or the Hamas that are funded by Iran. Um, and create different kind of uh, uh, cooperation between them. Uh, Lions Den is an example of a group of people. Some of them come from the PLO, some of them come from the Islamic Jihad, some of the Hamas, young guys that are not really uh, connected to the old generation. This is a TikTok generation, young guys, in social media and so on, very detached from this old and corrupt uh, leadership they have. So they're organizing themselves in uh, new groups and getting funding uh, as they, they uh, move forward with terror attacks, they manage to get funding also to continue. So the way you promote yourself and you, you get money is by killing Jews, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, is is um, Iran able to sustain its funding of all these groups, given how much uh, domestic turmoil it's had, and and uh, is the regime there even? Is it being threatened in any way? So, first of all, econom economically speaking, the Iranians in the last year or two are doing much well than before for two reasons. One is the surging price of energy, of oil. So they signed big agreements with China and they're able to bypass easily today the sanctions and sell their oil and gas. And because the prices have gone up so much and there is lack of, uh, of energy, uh, they manage to sell uh, their products at a very high price and, and, and overall their economy grew. 
they 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 reach the point where their GDP is like Russia, 1.6 trillion dollars, something like that. On the other hand, as you said, David, there is a lot going on inside Iran. There is all this protest going on. We don't really know to what extent because you know they close the social media and the media, and it's hard to to understand exactly what's going on, but they are very busy dealing with this turmoil they are suffering from. And this will be very interesting to see where, where, where it will go. And one of the things that Israel is trying to do is really push the Western world to stick with its values, to, to fight for these protesters who are fighting for their rights. Why ally themselves with such an evil regime instead of the protesters? So we see uh, with time more uh, inclined to, to support the protesters, but they don't have a leading leadership. The problem in Iran is, and it has been going on for years, they don't have a leader leading all these protests. And this is why it's very hard to coordinate them and, and really succeed to bring down the Iranian regime. But time will tell, we don't know what will happen. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. You mentioned uh, 2,000 UAVs. Uh, Iran has around 2,000 drones, armed drones. Hezbollah, Hezbollah. Hezbollah alone. Oh my goodness! So, just Hezbollah. Just Hezbollah in in Lebanon and imagine imagine that Hezbollah sends 200 UAVs in one in one wave into Israel. And they can carry a heavy payload. Yeah, they can carry a heavy payload of explosives. And the suicide UAVs. Yeah. And even if, uh, you know, even if Iron Dome will be extremely successful and our, you know, our capabilities and everything, it might be quite challenging. Uh, it's a challenging issue. Uh, Lebanon is very, very challenging. But at, on the other hand, Lebanon is falling apart, completely falling apart. There's no, it's not a functioning state anymore. <laughs> so we see two, and it's the same with Iran. On one hand, we see all the time a buildup of military force. On the other hand, these states, Lebanon is not really a state anymore. Iran is not in a very good shape and with everything going on. And the question is, uh, at the end of the day, what will determine, what will be the leading uh, factor here? Whether it's the collapse of the states or the buildup that are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, Iran has its own supplies of, of drones and they, they gave uh, quite a number to Russia. And you mentioned they're just destroying a lot of the infrastructure, the, for gas, heating oil, everything in uh, and doing so much damage in Ukraine. It, it did, has this really depleted uh, Iran's own supply of drones? And what all are you and the Israeli military learning from the conflict in Ukraine? Well, first of all, we're learning a lot. Um, first of all, I know when the, the war started, one of the things I said is, you see the Instagram hasn't changed the human nature. Mm. Human nature is still the same with all the technology. 
and you still have wars and you still have big wars. I mean, in this war, from what we know, more than 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers were killed. More than 100,000 Russian soldiers were killed. This is, these are crazy numbers. Millions and millions have been dislocated, fled the country. 60% of the country with no electricity, and we're talking about minus 10, minus 20 mm. degrees Celsius in, in, in Ukraine. It's devastating. It's a big war. And it's changing Europe because now all the countries in Europe understand that big wars might happen. Mm. And uh, we see the countries enlarging their defense uh, bu uh, budget and enlarging the armies. And today, the Israeli industries are everywhere. We are building a very strong uh, relations with North Europe. And as you know, David, North Europe hasn't been really nice to Israel in many occasions, but suddenly you see Sweden getting closer to Israel, Norway changing attitude. Um, things are changing because they need Israel. They don't need our know-how, our capability, um, our technology. And this is one, one thing that is changing. The other thing is, is talking about uh, gas because we are now exporting gas and even we're going to export oil, which is a huge change. Who would have thought that Israel will be an exporter of energy? But this is happening. And Europe is going to partially be rely on Israeli uh, uh, natural gas. And this is also changing our position in uh, Europe and strengthening us a lot. Yeah. Um, do you, with with uh, Netanyahu now uh, returning as prime minister, and with the fact that Iran was su supplying so many of these drones and other weapons to uh, Russia, do you expect the new Israeli government to change its uh, basic neutral po posture towards the Ukrainian conflict? No, I think that, um, look, what, what Russia is doing is, is terrible, but having said that, Russia pretty much control what's going on in Syria. Uh, they have a lot of effect on what's going on in Iran and Israel needs a good coordination. We need good relations with the Russians. Um, so I think that Israel will continue uh, the policy of being careful um, with the way we're handling ourselves with Russia. What can change that? When it will be worthwhile changing this position, when the American administration decides that it's siding clearly with us and the Sunni world and willing to attack Iran the day that America will decide that they are leading a, a coalition against Iran, that would be the day that Israel can say, okay, we are 100% siding only with the Americans. But when the Americans are sitting on the fence and it's not clear who they are siding with, and they're still talking to the Iranians and still aspiring to sign an agreement that is devastating for Israel, 
we need to also keep our cards open and, and have also good relations with Russia. Okay, uh, I want to go back to uh, Hezbollah in uh, um, Lebanon. I think you said uh, they possess 100,000 rockets. I think I think that's probably missiles. I, I think there's even a UN estimate that it may be up to 250,000, but that may include certain types of mortars and shorter range stuff, but it, it can hit most of Israel now. And there are reports that uh, Sheikh Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, may be ill. Is there any credibility to that? Uh, yeah, there were reports. Um, for many years he has been ill, but you know, it's still alive. We'll have to mm -hmm. see what happens. But of course, if there is a change of uh, leadership in Hezbollah, as, as I said before, so with the Palestinian Authority, this can be big, it can be a, a big change. Uh, we know Nasrallah for many years, we've studied him, we know how he behaves, what motivates him. If somebody new comes, uh, it can be a big change and we'll have to follow that. So I think Israel is following very, very carefully what is happening with the Arab leadership around us, understanding that any change can also be a change for good or for worse for mm Israel. -hmm. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, is reportedly ill. Nasrallah, even uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, has health problems, we understand, and, and some even say Putin. So there's a lot of, there's an older generation that uh, they all need uh, some doctors around him, but it, it, it could lead to some volatile times ahead, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, let's talk for a minute about Hamas in Gaza, because uh, I think we had you on in August, our first time with you talking about the little dust-up uh, three or four-day rocket war with Islamic Jihad which is basically controlled totally by Iran, an extension of their Revolutionary Guard. And, uh, and Hamas did not get involved in that war. What, what did you assess from that? And, and some say once they have responsibility for feeding the people of Gaza and all, they're going to moderate. Do you see them moderating in any way? Well, first of all, Hamas is not moderate. Hamas wants to destroy Israel completely. It's a very, very radical organization, but they act according to their interests. And um, they are still building their forces every day, more rockets and more capabilities and UAVs. It's ongoing all the time, but they also have the challenge of uh, dealing with the society, the society inside Gaza, um, uh, can turn against them if they don't care for them and they're trying to find uh, the right uh, equilibrium uh, dealing with the society and fighting Israel. Now they fought Israel again and again. Uh, at the end of the day, in the long term, they didn't gain anything from that. Um, Israel with all these uh, ongoing operations in Gaza, 
with all the difficulties, Israel is thriving, growing, the economy is doing great and so on. And Gaza is in, is in a terrible situation, terrible. Uh, 60, 70% of the people of Gaza have no jobs. The, the youngsters have no future. Many of them are trying to flee Gaza to Egypt, to Europe. Uh, so Hamas decided strategically that they need time to really um, build a bit the economy inside Gaza. So they decided they, they, they will uh, deal with build, building the force, but not fighting Israel. So what they did, they started uh, operating their people in, in East Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. Uh, they were successful to a certain extent, several terror attacks led by Hamas. But as the operation of the IDF is ongoing, also this uh, kind of uh, activities are not really doing uh, something big for them. So now there is something new. They, they decided that they are trying to push a deal uh, that will release many, many uh, Palestinian prisoners, as, as it was with Gilad Shalit in 2014, uh, if I remember well. Um, and um, they're trying to enhance talks uh, with Israel. It's not clear how Israel is going to react to that. Uh, Israel is not really interested to release prisoners. Certainly not this government. Um, but we see that Hamas is in a very, very problematic position because it's not really leading a fight against Israel. Um, on the other hand, the economy in Gaza is terrible. Um, the people are not happy. Uh, so they're quite uh, dealing with a lot of constraints and it will be interesting to see what will happen in the year, next year or two, especially when they know there's a new chief of staff, a new minister that is just waiting to really attack them. <laughs> and so they have, they have their own problems. Yeah, yeah. Hamas is, is biding its time, but uh, let's hope time runs out for them in their agenda. I'm going to uh, try and ask you three more questions. I know we've been peppering you left and right with these questions. But uh, um, I've always had the question, say, last August when Islamic Jihad started a rocket war. Hamas has done, I think, four major rocket wars and a couple other escalations. Of course, Hezbollah had the 2006 uh, Second Lebanon War, 30-some days of rockets pounding the northern half of Israel. Why have Hezbollah and Hamas never been able to... Uh, um, uh, coordinate and agree on a two-front rocket war at the same time that would, it's really a, 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 a security nightmare for Israel to face that. Why did they never do that? Do, and uh, would you expect it? Well, um, Iran has built Hezbollah uh, as the front militia for the day that Israel attempts to attack Iran or to deter Israel from attacking Iran, because it's obviously it's obvious that if we do attack, they will command uh, Hezbollah to shoot all these 100,000 rockets. 
So the interest of Iran is to keep Hezbollah for, for the day there is a war with Israel. They're not interested in waiting, wasting Hezbollah because if Hezbollah shoots Israel, Israel will have to go to war and destroy Hezbollah. And if we, and if we destroy them um, and, and really diminish their capabilities, then Iran, all this buildup Iran did all these years will not be relevant to defend them. So um, this is why Hezbollah is not uh, shooting at us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're keeping it for, uh, for the day that we will deal with uh, Iran. So and this so is why that's... for the Iran, they have Hamas to you know, molest us every year or two. Yeah, I think it was the the uh, Israeli assessment in 2006 that Nasrallah probably started that rocket war. He, he carried out the cross-border attack, did not expect it to blow up so quickly and so much. And he was probably, uh, dis, you know, he wasn't following Iran's orders. And, and it's been relatively quiet on that front ever since. So... Yeah, we have to remember that also that Hezbollah is heavily, heavily involved in the war in Syria. Syria. So opening two fronts when they have suffered thousands and thousands of casualties in the last decade. Um, They they, they, they are not in a very good shape. I mean, this organization has been fighting a war, ongoing war in Syria, and also not only in Syria, in Iraq and in Yemen. Uh, so the last thing they need now is uh, to see Israeli soldiers operating in, in Lebanon. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a balance. You as a, a battle commander probably know something about it between, you know, going into combat and your, your troops gaining combat experience, but also losing a lot of guys and it demoralizes. And sometimes maybe Hezbollah has crossed that point. Yeah, but it's it's also taking account that they are fighting not in their country. I mean, losing thousands and thousands of people in Syria. They're not defending someone else's war. Yeah, somebody else's war. This is really, really getting the families, Mm. you know, really angry. Yeah, yeah. They feel that they they're losing losing their their sons for nothing. Yeah. Um. Second question. Um. You, you said that a peace with the Saudis, which Netanyahu intends to pursue, uh, and it depends on the U.S. Uh, making certain security guarantees uh, to the Saudis and the Sunni Arab countries, especially concerning Iran, which they had the Obama, President Obama and now President Biden uh, were uh, abandoning uh the Saudis, they felt. But part of uh, what the Saudis are asking for, part of what the United Arab Emirates expected when they signed the Abraham Accords is to get some F-35s, this next generation fighter bomber. And Israel has always had concerns uh, because it could undermine its qualitative military edge in in the region. What do you think about if it requires for Israel to normalize relations with the Saudis, that they would receive F- a squadron or two F- F-35s. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? I think that 
if the US will be committed to deal with Iran, this won't be an issue for Israel. And by the way, even before there were F-35s, I can tell you that both the Saudis and the UAE got from the US better planes than they sold to Israel. Mm. The top they had at the time, you know, the top F-16, the best one, and the top F-15. So um, it's not new that the US equips its allies, Arab allies, like UAE and Saudi Arabia will stop American technology. And it was never really a, such a, a big issue for Israel. We were, we were more worried about the countries that are near us, like Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and so on. And I think that today, uh, really, we, we live in a world that in the Middle East, there is an understanding that Iran is a, is a existential threat, and we need to join hands, and we need to, to deal with this threat. Okay, I, my last question, and it, it's the big one that uh, you have identified clearly the Iranian uh, nuclear, the renegade nuclear program is the biggest threat facing Israel. And you have uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu returning to power. Some said when he was out of power, and he, but he's still talking about uh, the danger of it. People said, well, you were, you were in power for over 10 years. If you really want to do something about it, you, you should have attacked it. <clears throat> do you think Netanyahu um, has the disposition to order an attack on Iran if, if it looks like the intelligence said they are on the nuclear threshold? I think that uh, Netanyahu, you know, he has a sense of how he will be remembered in history. And he, I think he wants to be remembered as the, the guy that saved Israel from this uh, existential threat. And I think he, he definitely is uh, very uh, determined uh, to deal with it. Um, but again, from his experience, he will try not just to create a situation where Israel is alone in doing that, but really pushing the international community to, to be part of, uh, of this issue. And he has a lot to offer for that. Mm. Um, so it will be very, very interesting to see how, how he builds this uh, process in a way that gets the US and Europe maybe into this uh, big adventure. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, his former defense minister, Ehud Barak, came out last year or so saying Israel is not prepared for a long range, extensive bombing campaign against Iran's nuclear facilities. But I think some things have happened since then to help Israel prepare. I think uh, the fact that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Israel is the only country so far that has used the new F-35 fighter in actual combat in Syria. And it's proven incredibly effective. Even the Russian air defenses can't touch it. And that really should, uh, you know, you hope it deters Iran, but it shows Israel's capabilities are growing 
to to carry this out. But uh, you know, we hope it doesn't have to happen that way, and that the U.S., as you suggest, starts backing its traditional allies in the region in a way that will deter uh, Iran and uh, and help uh, defend not only Israel but other regional players. We thank you for your very interesting and thorough and uh, just uh, very analytic, uh, all that you shared here about Israel's security needs. We really, really appreciate it, General Vivi. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's not often you get an Israeli general, former general uh, that can just handle all those issues and really speak uh, in so many ways. Your research into, say, the GDP of Iran, uh, over the last year or two, despite the protests, their economy is growing. This is all very, very, very good information, and I think very important for assessing uh, the and security. Is, we have to remember at the end of the day that uh, we, with the Jewish people, have the biggest weapon of all. We have God with us, <laughs> and uh, with this, with such a weapon, you cannot fail. Yeah. So I'm optimistic. I think we'll manage with all these uh, issues. And it's, it's very, awesome. it's very refreshing to hear that. I know we appreciate thoroughly the IDF, but we also have to give credit to God for His. So I want to tell you something as somebody who has been a lot in combat. Okay. Yes. I've seen endless times, miracles. The the way the IDF operates. No, one of the, the officials in the state said, look, we cannot learn anything from you. Because if we we'll do the same, the results will be completely different. What you do and the help you get, it's a, you know, it's something else. And, and it's true. And it's true. Every day, every day that they are, are warriors, every night that you hear that the Israeli forces apprehended a terrorist in Ramallah or whatever, and everybody came back. And, you know, we, get, we take it for granted that, mm. you know, we manage every night to do an operation and everybody's okay afterwards. And no, we should, we should understand this is not granted. He, he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Amen. Okay. Thank you for your time. And uh, expertise, uh, Brigadier General from the IDF Reserve, Amir Avivi of the Israel Defense and Security Forum, also known as Habitha Nistim. Uh, it's a new growing movement here in Israel of former IDF officers, other security intelligence officials who've coalesced to try and, and shape the debate on Israel's security needs. And we just really appreciate your time. Look forward to working with you more in the future. And next uh, week on our ICEJ weekly webinar, we will be talking about the, this uh, very heated uh, debate here in Israel. Some call it a constitutional crisis in a country that has no constitution. So we're going to really unpack the new Israeli government's uh, proposed judicial reforms, why the left is so up in arms about it, why the right has, has said this is our 
top priority. We're going to have uh, journalists from the Times of Israel who wrote a piece last week that really laid out right to uh, right to the heart of the issue. We're going to talk about this next week. Of course, you can join us here on Thursday, four o'clock Israel time, every Thursday for the ICJ weekly webinar. 